Um, Matthew 14, 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking out on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come, come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Amen. We'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. And as they're doing that, if you haven't already, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. As we sang that uh, last song, those of you that are with us, as we walk through the Gospel of John, maybe some of those, uh, some of those truths that we just sang uh, rang true. You remember uh, Jesus saying that he's the river of life that never runs dry and uh, that he's the true vine. And then as you heard, uh, Lindsay's kind of little testimony of uh, what God's doing as she took a step of faith to serve our friends downtown. Um, maybe you heard some of the ideas we've been talking about, about joining Jesus on the redemptive edge where he's at work. Um, today we're going to continue um, this Above and Beyond initiative. And uh, this is a series that we started last week and we'll continue going for several more weeks. And um, it, isn't, uh, it is a generosity initiative and it, but it's not necessarily a fundraising program. It's not us selling boxes of candy for new uh, playground equipment or something. This is not a program for us. This is an axiom for our lives. For the Christian, generosity in the kingdom of God is a way of life. It's part of the DNA of a Jesus follower. And I, I believe that we live in a culture um, that is moving, uh, we're already post-Christian, but moving further and further and uh, regular generosity of you, uh, you know, giving comfortably is not going to be enough. It's not a great enough apologetic anymore. It's radical generosity. Hospitality is not enough. It's radical hospitality. Forgiveness is not enough. Radical forgiveness. And this is what God is calling us to do. And we see that certainly in the person of Jesus. In the second uh, sermon in this series, I want to talk about uh, staying faith. We see this in uh, Matthew 14, and in, uh, in 11 years, I have, we, have never, uh, we have never taught on this passage specifically. We've preached through the entire Gospel of Luke, the entire Gospel of John. Um, both of those have, a, well, John specifically has a recording of this incident, but not Peter actually uh, following Jesus, getting out of the boat. So I'm excited to get uh, into this with you today. Before we do that, I heard this illustration I uh, read this illustration, rather, and I thought it was applicable, that there are two ways to keep a balloon in the air. One is by smacking it. I don't know if you ever played that game in your family where you sit around the living room and you try to see how long you can keep a balloon in the air by hitting it to each other. Again, in our family, um, uh, this, is, this is a competition. We try to, we try to do it. I remember just Claire being a really, young, a really young toddler and us playing this. Let's try to see if we can do it 20 times, Dad. And we would just knock the, ball around, uh, knock the balloon around and keep it in the air. And so that's how this works. The other way, though, to keep a balloon in the air is what? It's to fill it with helium. And then you don't have to smack it. It just stays up there. And I feel that that's kind of how some of us relate to church. We go to church and we get smacked around by the sermon or by worship and it inspires us, it does, to get back out there and to do, give this thing another try, get after it another week, but it only lasts a day or two, and then we're slowly fall back down. And we got to get to church again so that we can be smacked again and get back up there. But that's, that's really not how the Bible describes the Christian life. The Bible describes the Christian life that God wants for us as Holy Spirit living inside of you. 
And he's the one. You don't have to be smacked around. I was talking about this with a friend yesterday. It's not just being, you know, smacked around. I'll be, I, I pray that these sermons encourage you and inspire you. I pray that God does something in the sermons to bring conviction. They had a basketball game in here last night, and they shot confetti. I don't know if you saw any of the confetti falling down. I, I saw it, and I thought it was a dove. I thought, man, the Lord has joined us. This is about to be good. Uh, it was just pink confetti. Um, I used to use this illustration of uh, Moses going up the mountain and how a lot of us view church in that way or just hearing from God that the pastor goes up the mountain during the week and he hears from God and he shows up on Sunday and brings out the tablets and he just shares with you what God had told him. But again, that's really not the way that Christians relate to walking with the Father in the love of the Father through the New Testament. It's more the the pastor's at the foot of the mountain trying to encourage you to go up the mountain so that you could hear from God, that he wants to speak to you. And so before we jump in this today, I want to pray aloud. If you'll just pray silently right where you're at, and you could be brand new. This is your first time. Would you just ask that God would speak to you today through the word? God, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, a love so great and so wide and so deep. And nothing, as the psalmist says, what can separate us from the love of God? And we also come in here today, a lot of us, not free. Bound by sin or its consequences, faulty belief, believing the lie of the enemy. Divided relationships, distracted. So God, more than ever, we need to hear from you. Holy Spirit, would you do what needs to be done in the hearts of men and women and students in here? Would you bring encouragement, bring conviction, equip us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the context of this passage is... If you can see in your scriptures that Jesus had uh, just fed the 5,000, this uh, really about 10 or 15,000, counted, they would count men only um, when they were, when it's just easier to count just the men. They would know there's about 12 to 15,000 people that Jesus had just fed from just a, a little lunch a little boy had carried in. Right before that, Matthew records the death of John the Baptist. Remember, a lot of these disciples were followers of John the Baptist first and then of Jesus. And so it's in the midst of their grieving. They're wondering, man, what is going on? They're a bit uh, confused. Jesus steps up and does this incredible miracle. And the people, I mean, if you see a man do that, especially in this agrarian society where you had to wait on the harvest and food was very limited and you had enough stored up to probably last you today, and now you see this Messiah who can take these few loaves and fish and multiply them and feed thousands of people. So they're pressing in. It says in verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. It's not the point of the sermon, but I want you to notice how often Jesus does this especially after he pours into other people. He goes up to the mountain to pray, to be filled again. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And we'll pause there just, just real quick. I want you to see just a few things in this passage. These are not the main points, but... Certainly they're evident here. One, see that Jesus sent the disciples into the storm. Now likely they didn't know that the storm was imminent. The context of the Sea of Galilee at 600 feet below sea level. Storms would appear quickly over the mountains that surrounded them. If you've ever been on water when a storm rolls up, it's a pretty scary uh, event. And you see in the text that they, they've been on the boat for a long time. It's a long way from land. They've been beaten by the waves and the wind was against them. So Jesus sent the disciples into the storm. And I only bring that up because a lot of times we believe if we walk through difficulty, it's because God's not with us. And my friends, that's just not true. 
You ever heard the line that the safest place to be is in the center of the will of God? I believe that's true in a sense, but sometimes people confuse that to mean that everywhere God's going to send you is a safe and easy place, like it's just walking through a garden. Here, they obeyed the direct command of Jesus, and they ended up in a storm as a result. And we need to understand this so when the storm hits our life, we don't assume that we're out of the will of God or that God has given up on us. Certain storms are part of the will of God for us, not because God's necessarily angry at us, but because God is doing something inside of us. There are some things that we only learn walking through the storms of life. Certain storms are part of God's will for us. Paul says in Acts 20, verse 22, and now compelled by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to go into Jerusalem to make this point, not knowing what will happen to me. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships await me. Here, walking in the center of the will of God, knowing that what's coming for them, what's coming for him. Paul understood that these trials in which he was referring to were part of the will of God. So when we make a decision of faith and things get difficult, don't be surprised. Remember that you have an enemy that immediately goes to war against you. And two, that God is trying to strengthen your resolve and deepen your faith. He never wastes the pain. The biggest thing God might be doing in your life right now is just teaching you to trust him so that faith leads you through difficulty and not around difficulty. But most of us, we want the easy life. We want God to take us around the difficulty and not through it. Isaiah 43 says this way, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. But when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. This is a promise of God to the people of Israel talking about the difficulty that they're going to walk through. And he says, hey, you're going to walk through the water, you're going to walk through the river, you're going to walk through the fire. And yet they're not going to consume you. They're not going to overwhelm you. But Jesus, I'd just like you to take me around the water and, and maybe over the bridge. And maybe we can skip the fire. But he does not do that. God takes us through the waters and through the fire and through the river to show us this one thing. And this is so important that his grace is deeper than the water. And his presence stronger than the fire. He wants us. He wants me to be able to trust him in any situation. The point is not your comfort. The point is not my control. The point is that we would learn to trust the Heavenly Father. Remember last week, the illustration, I told you the illustration of Ellie jumping into the pool with me and it took so long and she would sit down on the edge and kind of roll into my arms and then she would jump, but she would make sure I was holding her the whole time, which was not really jumping. But she had to be convinced, right, that, that my heart was good and that my arms were strong enough. I wasn't pay, playing a trick on her. I wasn't going to drop her. In the same way, this is what the Heavenly Father is trying to remind us even today, that his heart is good and his arms are strong. So no matter what things look like, we can trust him, friends. You might be going through some, one of the darkest seasons of your life. God sees. He knows. That's the thing about faith. Faith leads you through difficulty, not around it. Life is hard and there are storms. And the amount of your faith doesn't absolve the storm. I hate this so much about the, pros the false prosperity gospel. The false gospel that says that if you're sick or poor or walking through difficulty is because you didn't have enough faith. And that's the most ignorant statement. Probably said by someone who has never read the gospel. Have you ever read 2 Corinthians about all the difficulty that Paul went through of being shipwrecked multiple times and nights at sea and beaten and left for dead? And yet God was with him through all of those things. Some of you have found this out the hard way. You've already walked through. You lived a lot of life. And you've walked through some of the darkest, bleakest situations. And you've come out on the other side. You've walked through the water and it's not overwhelmed you. You've walked through the river and it didn't wash you out. You've walked through the fire and it didn't consume you. And you could testify up here. Y'all remember when they had open 
open mic Sundays at church growing up. You ever had those? We always had them on the fifth Sunday. We didn't know what to do. So we sang a bunch of hymns and we had open mic night. We're not doing that today just so you're not nervous. But many of us could testify again and again how in the darkest moments of our life, Jesus was there. Verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way off from land. John tells us it's about three or four miles. Three or four miles of rowing through the night in the middle of the storm, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Man, so much we could preach about. Man, you ever felt like the wind was against you? And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. The fourth watch is somewhere between... 2 and 6 a.m., probably about 4, 4 in the morning, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Now, when I imagine the disciples, especially Peter, their ringleader, and James and John, the sons of thunder, they were called. These are, these are burly men. These are men's men. These are fishermen. I, I imagine that they wore buffalo plaid and carried an axe around with them everywhere. I, this, is, this is what I think about when I think about it. And yet they're in the boat and they're struggling against the sea. But that's not what terrified them. What terrified them is them seeing a ghost, they thought, walking on the sea. And I just, I kept just in my mind trying to imagine them like linking arms and crying out in fear. You ever have one of those irrational fears that'll make even the biggest, strongest man squeal like a little girl? You know, like a mouse or a snake or a spider. This is what they're screaming out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart at his eye, do not be afraid. Again, so much here. I want to park here just for a bit. But I want you to notice a couple things. One, Jesus did not enter into the storm immediately. He let them fight against the wind all night. And then when he does come, the Greek word used here is like taking a stroll. He comes strolling by them at a distance, close enough where they could hear his voice in the storm, which in the storm had to be pretty close. But you know what? You notice he doesn't come right up to them and just hop in the boat and Superman's here. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I've come here to save you. It's okay. Jesus is here on the scene. I'm here to save you. Now, if you read this parallel count in Mark chapter 6, this is amazing, verse 48, it says that he meant to pass by them. How odd is that? Like Jesus is taking a stroll, like you would take a stroll through Central Park, like you would take a stroll on a nice day. You know, he's just. Hanging out, leisurely paced, but he's walking on the sea. And Mark says that he meant to pass by them, which is the great, like, what was he going to do? Just kind of wave at them and say, hey, guys, isn't this cool? And just keep going? Uh, row a little harder? I mean, I don't know what he, was, what he meant to do. But I think that's there for a purpose. They're struggling for hours, storm around them, soaking wet, exhausted, in the dark. Jesus is just going to walk by them. Hey, I'll just see you on the other side, boys. But to get his help, they had to call out to him. He's here to help. But friends, we have to ask. We have to invite him in. Some of you are walking through some difficulties right now. And you're trying to handle him on your own. And he's right there, eager to help, ready to help. But you got to invite him in. Some of us have some real wounds from the past. And we're trying to work through those. And it's affecting our present. And one of the greatest things we can do, yes, go see a counselor. One of the greatest things we can do is just invite Jesus in. James says, we have not because we ask not. The book of Revelation gives us the picture of Jesus at the door. He said, and here I stand at the door and knock. Asking us, waiting for us to invite him in. And that passage is not about lost people giving their lives to Jesus. This is written to the church. So many of us just become 
I don't know if it's lazy or arrogant that we just think that we can just do life and handle all its difficulty and all its blessing on our own and we don't invite him in. In the scene, we see a few things about Jesus that I love. One, that he's a powerful God. Jesus made creation and the laws of creation and the laws of gravity and the laws of the buoyancy of water. He made all those things. And so at this very moment, he's commanding the sea to support his weight. He's a powerful God. What kind of God walks on the waves in the storm? And he does, it's not like a chore for him. He's not like on the stepper, which, which would be amazing. Is he splashing when he walks? I did wonder that. How is he just like, is he just like literally just kind of, you know, it looks like he's floating? He's a powerful God. It says, too, that he gets in the boat later and the wind immediately stops. John says he gets in the boat and immediately they're there. Crazy is that. He's a powerful God. Friends, I just need to remind you that we serve a powerful God. No sinner so lost that his grace can't save. No son so confused. No daughter so bitter that his grace can't reach out. He's a powerful God. He's a personal shepherd. But immediately, it says in verse 27, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Now, if you're with us in the gospel of John as we walk through it, we took several weeks and talked about the I am statements. And there's a lot of them. We didn't talk about this one, but this is actually one of them. This is the same word that he's using, the ego I me in the Greek, that the I am, which was the translation to the very words of God to Moses. When Moses is seeing God in the burning bush and he says, uh, he says God, I gotta, I'll, I'll go tell him, I'll be your mouthpiece, all the things, but t- I got to tell him, who, who are you? And he uses this word, I am that I am. And then Jesus uses this word. Think about that. Of all the things that he could have responded, everyone up to that point knew God as Elohim, the creator God. They knew he was, the, he, was the, he was the one that created the earth and the sun and created humans and everything that we see. But now God has given himself a personal name. I am that I am. I'm not who you think I am. I'm not who you want me to be. I am the I am. The personal name of the creator God. He can't say I was because he had no beginning. When he says I am, he's saying that he is his own cause and his own condition. He doesn't exist because of something. Rather, everything exists because of him. Notice here too, he says I am, don't be afraid. Or he hears them screaming in the boat, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And this is so strong, and we don't have time to go into the fullness of this, but in the Old Testament, whenever God shows up on the scenes, he tells people to take their shoes off. Whenever God shows up on the scenes and the, and the thundering and the clouds, he says, make sure you don't touch that mountain. Or even the picture of the, the Ark of the Covenant that being carried by the poles. And if you remember that story, it starts to shift off, and somebody goes up to steady it, and they touch it, and they die immediately because that was the presence of God in the Old Testament. You couldn't, you couldn't get close, or you would, or you would die. It was, he was ultimate holy and awesome and here we are finite and plagued with humanness and yet when you see Jesus God with us he came in a way that he could be touched he came in a way that he could be known Jesus says not I, here I am, I am, don't touch me. But he says, I am, what did he say? Don't be afraid. My holiness is not a threat to you anymore. Because he was headed to the cross to bear my sin and guilt. And in exchange, she gave me the righteousness of God. 
so that now I can enter the throne room boldly, just like a son or daughter does, into their parents' room to ask for a drink of water in the night or to tell them they're scared of the monster under the bed or, or just to make sure they're there and they need a hug. We, this is the access that we have to the ultimate awesome creator God through the person of Jesus. We are his sons, friends. We are the sons and daughters of God. And until we understand that, the enemy is going to keep winning. And we're not going to be able to push back the kingdom of darkness and expand the kingdom of light because we've got the wrong mentality. He is our personal shepherd. He shows up on the scene and says, Take heart at his eye. Do not be afraid. But more than that, he's the compassionate father. He's a powerful God and a personal shepherd, but he's a compassionate father. I love this. That they don't even cry out in faith. They cry out in fear, with his, which is bad faith. But Jesus still answers them. Do you know what that shows you? That God is a compassionate father who responds to his kids when they call on him. He doesn't refute us and say, you did, you did not pray in Jesus' name. He does not respond to us even with the sin and the gunk in our life. The point being in Luke 15, we talked about last week, when the, when the, when the son who's been sowing his wild oats is coming to the father just for a better life, not because he's repentant. He's just coming, and he certainly is not repentant to the father. And he comes back, and the father meets him halfway and puts the coat and the ring and kills the fatted calf and throws a celebration. And he says, we're celebrating because my son was lost, and now he has come home. Psalms 50, 15 says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. What God is trying to do in my life and your life is he is trying to build our trust in him. Do you know how you learn to trust God? By trusting in him. By jumping off the side of the pool and he catches you. And you back up a little further and you jump again. And you back up a little further and start doing tricks and he catches you every time. You learn to trust God by trusting in him. Isn't this what David said when he killed Goliath? When Paul's asking him, well, David, are you crazy? This guy's just huge and mean and awesome and he's going to take you down. How do you know? How do you know that you can go and fight Goliath? And David's like, well, I... I don't really know, but I know when I, you know, I was watching my dad's sheep that I went out there and a bear came up and the bear was going to get the sheep and it was my job to protect the sheep and I, and I went after that bear and I killed the bear with my own hands. And then another day there was a lion and a lion was coming after the sheep and I was there to protect the sheep and, and I, the, the lion was coming and, I, you know, I'm no match for a lion, but I, I stood in the way of that lion and I killed that lion. And the God that was with me when I fought the bear and when I fought the lion is certainly going to be with me when I fight the giant. You know how you learn to trust God? You learn to trust him by trusting in him. And some of us are living this life of fear. and We don't want to give him the thing, whatever that thing is, that we're saying, God, I'll give you the 90%. You can have my Sundays. You can have my whatever it is. I'll give you all this. But this little thing, this is my thing, and I'm going to hide this in my closet, and I don't want anyone to touch this because I just don't know if you're safe enough. Me and Christian are reading a book called Win the Day, and we talked about this last week. In that book, the author says, we don't want to have to trust God. We want God to provide more for us so we can trust him less. And that'll never work. Because God's desire for us is to trust him. And he'll keep moving the scaffolding away from the building that he's building so that we'll begin to trust him. Verse 28, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. Again, this is not in the other accounts. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, and it really translates, Lord, since it's you, Lord, since it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. 
noticed when Jesus showed up, he didn't fix the disciples' problem by making the storm go away. He just gave Peter another command to come to him. Because, again, the point is not the storm. The point is that we would trust him and we have faith in him. This is so significant. It's another place. It's giving us a glimpse of what it means to walk with Jesus, that he's far more concerned about growing the faith of the disciples than he is about removing the obstacle in front of them. And many of us, when we're in a difficulty, all we do is we pray, God, take it away. And maybe we should start asking him, God, what do you want me to do here? What are you trying to teach me? We should ask him, all right, God, what's next? What's the next step? What's the next command? As Peter says, Lord, since it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Because Peter did know something. That it was Jesus, the one that opened his mouth and spoke everything into existence. And if he did that, then certainly he can change the laws of gravity and the laws of buoyancy. There's nothing wrong with asking God to fix the problem. But first we should ask him, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? What are you inviting me to? Maybe it's the posture of our heart that we should stop demanding and start listening. This is a fascinating passage. So Peter gets out of the boat. This is verse 29, end of 29. So Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came to Jesus. And can you imagine the faith of the other disciples? Like, that, that joker's just trying to get out of work, right? We're still here rowing the boat. The wind's against us. They're moving backwards. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind... He was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, oh, you of little faith. It's one word in the Greek. Little faith is what he called him. He called him a new name, little faith. Why did you doubt And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Why is this story here? It's kind of a weird place to put it. Of all the things, John said there's so many things that Jesus did, if we were to write them all, not all the paper in all the world could have filled all the things that he did. But this one got included. Maybe you would think that it's there to inspire us that we can go walk on water. And maybe that's the faith step. We're going to go home and we got a pool and it's really cold. You're going to go try to walk on the water. But I don't, I don't think that's the purpose here. In Acts, when Paul's in a shipwreck, it never occurs to him that he could walk on the water and start just strolling to shore because he didn't, he didn't have the power to do that. This might be a small caveat, but you know, one of the greatest mistakes we make is starting to compare our story with someone else's, our gifts against someone else's, our faith against someone else's. This story is here to show us how we walk by faith. Because that's going to be one of the biggest problems for these disciples. N.T. Wright says it this way, the story's here to teach us how to continue what we start in faith. And I love that. I like to use the phrase coming full circle in our faith or growing into full maturity. And here's the lesson, and it's just, just real quickly. Friends, we need staying faith. Peter had already shown great faith. He was only one of the disciples who jumped out of the boat and even attempted to walk on the water. He had already shown great faith. He had showed incredible faith by just following Jesus. How many of you have left your college degrees and your lifelong ambitions and dreams behind to go be a missionary? Not many of you. That's what Peter did. That takes incredible faith. How many of you have ever walked on water? Incredible faith. Then why did Jesus call him little faith? Because he had faith in the beginning, but he didn't have staying faith. You know, I love Peter. I've told you this before because we see glimpses of his humanity. 
More than that, we see glimpses of his flesh. You know, Peter was not his real name. That's the nickname that Jesus gave him that meant the rock. Simon was his real name. And it's easy to see him as really two different people trapped in one body. Right before the crucifixion, Peter says, Jesus, I'll never deny you, even if everyone else on this team denies you, not me. That's the Peter part of him. That's the rock. Yet the same night, he denies Christ three times. That's Simon. Peter in Acts 2 is the first one to declare that God has included the Gentiles in his redemption plan of salvation. That's Peter, the rock, standing up to a religious crowd who certainly were pushing back. But just a few chapters later, he refuses to eat with those same Gentiles because he's scared of what the other Jews are going to think about him. And Paul has to confront him to his faith. face. That's Simon. In our text today, Jesus, if that's you, I'll come to you. Just invite me to come on out there. He's the only one to show that kind of courage. That's Peter. First out of the boat, but then right in the middle. He gets scared and starts to sink, and that's Simon. Peter's got a faith side to him and a fear side to him. And if we're honest today, I think we're all like that. That we can look back on moments of our faith where we made big decisions to follow Jesus and it cost us a lot. And there are moments when we were set up to trust him and we returned to our old selves and we let fear win over. You ever feel like you should have two names? We need staying faith, friends. But the next point, I think, is that it's not the object of our faith that matters most. It's the, it is. It's the object of our faith, not the amount of our faith. It's the object of our faith that matters the most. Where did Peter's initial faith come from? The focus on Jesus. Again, in verse 26, the disciples saw him walking on the sea, and they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke, saying, it's I, don't be afraid. They were terrified at first because of the storm and the night and the exhaustion, and then the ghost, what they thought was a ghost. But when they saw, when they saw Jesus, like the Loch Ness monster, just walking across the water towards them, they were even more afraid. That was until Jesus was close enough for them to see and hear. And Peter saw the great I am was standing on top of the very thing that had terrified him the minute before that. Jesus' initial faith came from a focus on Jesus. But secondly, it was Jesus' command or Jesus' invitation. Peter figured that it was more important to obey the command of Jesus than to focus on the circumstances. And that was faith. He responded to the invitation of Jesus. Peter knew something that I pray that we're learning is that wherever God guides, he provides. Wherever he guides, he provides. We could set 10 or 12 families from our church up here and them talking about the process of adoption or fostering. And they could talk about how scary that was and how much money they had to raise. It cost a lot of money, $40,000, $60,000 to go through this process. They never thought they would get that. The foster care system was a mess. They didn't know how they were going to go through this. How in the world... But they focused on the invitation of Jesus instead of the circumstances. And God proved himself faithful again and again. And many of these kids running around here before and after the service are full evidence of the grace of God that he comes through. And this is what Peter was understanding. Wherever God guides, he's going to provide. If he invites me to walk on the water, he's going to give me the strength. And whatever else needs to go into the molecular composite of the water at that moment so he can step on it, and it would bear his weight. Peter understood in that moment, and we need to as well, that if God calls you to it, he's going to walk you through it. Where he guides, he provides. Peter is not so much walking on water as he is walking on the promises of God. He's not so much standing on the waves as he is standing on the character of Jesus. And it wasn't until he took his eyes off of Jesus, off those two things, Jesus himself and the invitation to come or the command to come, the promises and the person of Jesus, that he started to sink. Look at verse 30 again. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. 
when he focused on the wind, he was afraid. He knew the wind was there. He'd been battling the wind all night. But when he looked away from Jesus and saw the storm, he saw the wind, it says. He was afraid and began to sink and he cried out. One commentator said, if you focus on the word, you can walk on water. If, if you focus on the waves, you'll wallow in weakness. Here's the secret to this passage as I bring this to a head. The point of this passage is not to demonstrate the greatness or the weakness of Peter's faith. The point is to demonstrate the greatness of God's grace. As I was reading the parallel accounts of this, I noticed that in John and Mark's account, he didn't mention this part about Peter at all. Getting out of the boat and sinking. It seems something that you would write about. I mean, your friend walked on water too. That seems... But the only thing they mention is Jesus coming to them on top of the waves. And it's because this story is not about Peter's faith really at all. It's about Jesus' faithfulness. That's what Peter wants us to know. That Jesus is always close. You might, might not be a note taker, but I encourage you to write that down. That Jesus is always close. When you call out to him, even if it's in fear or from a lack of faith, he helps. Psalms 94 says, when I said my foot is slipping, your steadfast love, O Lord, supported me. Our God is a God who will always be there to catch us, to pick us back up, to lift us on top of the waves. Have you noticed too, John Bloom wrote a book and titled with a chapter about this, that, that the rock sank slowly. You notice he sank slowly, isn't that unique? I mean, have you ever jumped into a swimming pool and sank slowly? No, you sink immediately. You don't have time to call out to Jesus, hey Jesus, I'm slipping over here. You don't have time to say that. You're just jumping in and you're under it. And yet Peter sank slowly because of the grace of Jesus. So when you waver, friends, put your eyes back on Jesus. This story doesn't give us an example to emulate, but a Savior to trust. And how much more, friends, should we see this on this side of the cross, where we see Jesus not only that he came to us in the storm, but he took in his, into himself the storm of God's wrath. Not only did he walk on top of the waves, but he soared over sin and death in the resurrection. Not only did he lift us up on top of the waves, but he filled us with the power of the resurrection life. And I know that if he reached all the way down to hell to rescue me from my sin, then I know that he'll help me when I stumble. If he reached out to save me when I was his enemy, certainly he'll reach out to help me when I'm his son. See, I say it again, ultimately God's purpose in the Christian life is to teach you to trust him. So where does that leave us? In the midst of difficulties and the decisions of faith, maybe you started out well, but now you're faltering. You put your eyes and your ears back on the things that they were on in the beginning when you first made the decision. You believed Jesus was trustworthy and you risked trusting him. You obeyed his command and now things have gotten difficulty and the, and, the, and the winds of the storm are swirling around. But that doesn't mean that Jesus has left you or that you made a wrong decision again. He is strengthening your resolve and trying to deepen your trust in him. My encourage to you is to re-embrace his character. Re-hear the invitation and take the next step. Think of Peter's faith as the first step. What kind of faith does he need for the next step? The same kind of faith. Every step is the same act of faith. We don't experience faith so much by sitting around and dreaming up grand dreams, but by actually trusting Jesus as we take the next step. This expression of faith, we talk about this all the time, is a faith step. It's not a dream step. Getting to the end of your life and feeling like you've walked on water is the result of a lifetime of small, faithful steps in following Jesus. Friends, I encourage you to take that step of faith this morning. 
Maybe it's a small step of forgiving someone that's offended you. Or reclaiming God's forgiveness of you and getting up again in the morning to struggle another day against that sin of unforgiveness and forgiving them again. Maybe it's being willing to put up with the scorn one more day as you try to be faithful, a faithful witness for Jesus in the marketplace. Maybe it's getting back to the assignment. Maybe you've heard words spoke over to you. Some of you have been called into a ministry position and life has been hard and difficult and you've been through, I mean, you've been to hell and back. But God's call has not wavered. Remember that call that he has placed on your life. Maybe it's time to trust God again with your finances so you can be generous or embrace sacrifice again or being willing to press on as a single person without a girlfriend or a boyfriend as you wait for the one that God's leading you to. The expression of faith is the step. So friends, take the next step. For some of you, the the next faith step will be your first faith step. But if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. I recently read in one of John Acuff's books, Start, there's only one line in life that you can control, and it's not the finish line, it's the starting line. Every big finish began with a small start. Jesus is close and compassionate. He doesn't come to criticize. He comes to invite you to walk with him in faith. We take communion in a minute, but I want to look at one, one, last, one last verse, verse 32. Look at that, how he ends that. I love this. And when they got in the boat, that's Jesus and Peter, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. They moved quickly from fearing the storm to worshiping Jesus. And that's the logical reaction considering the power that Jesus showed walking on water and the love that he showed taking care of a sinking Peter. His arms were strong and his heart is good. Before we take communion, I just want you to spend some time with, the, with Jesus just right there at your seat. And I want you to remember your beginning faith. Maybe it's a season of your life. Maybe, maybe it's the moment. Maybe you remember the moment where you trust Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Maybe you were young. You don't remember the exact moment. But at some point, the sun came up over the horizon and you began to see in a new light. You trusted him. I want you to remember that first step. And then I want you to ask him about the second or the next. God, what's, what's the next step of faith that you put in front of me? Lord, help me to trust you. Use what little obedience you're capable of, even if it's like a grain of mustard seed, one author says. Begin where you are. So, God, I pray that you would work in our hearts and our lives. I pray for our faith family, Covenant Church. God, that you would, you, would, you would conform us into your image, that we would be an expression of the bride of Christ on earth, and we would be a beautiful one at that. Loving the lost, the last and the least. Conforming to your image through this discipleship. Linking arms as a family. God, I realize that all starts with identity. As we take communion here in just a second, Lord, would you remind us of what it means to be a son or a daughter? Close with the glory and splendor of God himself. Made in your likeness. That what sin came to destroy, you came to remake. And as we take the cup and drink it, we remember your blood that purifies us of sin. And as we partake of the body, we are reminded of you allowing your body to be hung on that cross so that we could be grafted in into the family of God, that we could be adopted. 
Father, if there's those in this room who've never taken that first step across that line of faith, I pray that you would give them the boldness to do it now, to do it today. For those who've been hurt and somewhere along the way, their faith waned, they lost focus. Lord, would you call them back home? Would you remind them once again that your call in their life has not wavered? That you still want to do far more above anything they can ask or imagine? Would you wrap that jacket around them and put the seal of approval on their finger? And all of heaven would be leaning over and throwing a party because your son came home, your daughter came home. For that last group in here, God, I just pray that you would give them staying faith. Their greatest battles might still be ahead of them. The strongest wind might still be around the next corner. That's nothing for us to fear. As long as our focus is on you and our ears incline to you. As we take communion, as we sing, Father, speak to us. Some of us are so hard of hearing so stubborn to act. Would you speak to us again? It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Communion's open if, whenever you're ready. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Some of our prayer team will be back there. It would make their week to pray with you. Maybe there's a big obstacle in front of you and you just need somebody to pray with you. Maybe there's a person of peace in your life that seems so far from making the decision to follow Jesus. Come see some of our prayer team. They'd love to pray with you. then we'll sing our anthem together. Would you come when you're ready?